Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. And, you know, last week, Chris, we had the great pleasure of uh, another guest, which we always love having guests. And so we had Sufi al-Hajj Daoud on the program with us. And as we were discussing more topics for this week's uh, episode, we were reading an article that he contributed to a larger book, and we thought we ought to just have him back. So uh, Sufi al-Hajj Daoud also known as Dr. David Peck. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So w- this article that we were reading, David, I'll call you David if you don't mind. Please. Is, uh, is one that was on a contribution to a larger work regarding the great apostasy. And your contribution to that was an academic contribution, but one that, that tried to reframe the apostasy and maybe even pull us away from that narrative a bit, not to completely abandon it uh, for those who are, you know, very invested in it, but but more just to give us a different idea about what it might mean and um, and some perspectives from other religious traditions that might inform how we look through that lens. Is that an accurate way of framing that? Yeah, I think that's that's certainly appropriate, yes. So we thought today we would do this episode on the great apostasy, but we're going to title this one Moving Beyond the Great Apostasy. Or something like that. That's great. Does that work for you, Chris? Yeah. Cool. So if we were to make this attempt at moving beyond the great apostasy, where might we begin? That's a really good question. I think that the way I began with the other people that we worked with on on this book project um, that I'll get into in just a second here was uh, that we decided to approach it as, first of all, what we might call active Mormons. I figure if someone pays tithing, that means they're active, right? <laughs> because they're spending hard-earned money. Uh, that's a good sign. So I would say active Mormons. And uh, actually uh, began with an article written by uh, Eric Dursteller at BYU, a historian at BYU. Dr. Dursteller wrote a really profound article. I can't remember the exact year. I think it's 2005 or so. And what he was doing was he wrote on the historiography of the great apostasy, meaning where did the history that seems to underlie our discussions of the great apostasy come from? And uh, it's, it's a great article. It is in the book. It was included uh, in the book. And uh, the book is Standing Apart. Uh, and it deals with uh, the great apostasy and Mormon historical consciousness. It was published, I think, 2014 by Oxford University Press. And um, so here's how that project came about. Uh, Dr. Dursteller wrote this article, and uh, I used it in my teaching because my teaching at BYU-Idaho, I taught the history, I taught world civilizations. And whenever I came to the Middle Ages, I inevitably ran into really kind of bad historical 
uh, analysis of what my students were calling great apostasy. And, uh, and so I would often kind of assign portions of the Dirschteller article to them to say, now here's, here's where that came from. And so um, what happened is a number of us in the academic world that, that were interested in um, great apostasy questions uh, followed up on Dr. Dirschteller's article. Uh, two in particular, uh, John, Young, Dr. John Young, who teaches at Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida, and Miranda Wilcox, who teaches at uh, BYU, both medievalists. Uh, she on, on the side of medieval literature. He's a medieval historian with a MA in Jewish studies from Oxford, really top-notch people. Uh, started a conversation within a Mormon academic community and tried to find participants they looked for people who could deal with ancient scripture and Hebrew. They dealt with people that were New Testament experts. They dealt people who were experts in late antiquity and the formation of what we would think of as, as Western Christianity. They dealt with medievalists um, and, and so on, all the way up to people who are specialized in the history of the church. Uh, Matthew Gray and these kinds of people and, and, and tried to bring it, tried to bring all of this scholarship to bear on the ways in which the great apostasy narrative is formulated and the ways in which it is worked out. And so there were 15 of us, they included Terrell Givens, among other people. And uh, for all of us that were included, in, that, in fact, there were 15 of us. And I, I asked Terrell Givens at a lunch, I said, are we like going to get in trouble for addressing a core LDS narrative? I mean, the great apostasy is the bookend of the restoration, right? It doesn't get any more. There are companions. And he said, no, he thought the, the environment was much better, that we weren't going to get in trouble. Because I was jokingly calling us the February 15, you know, <laughs> thinking the time may come where, you know, we get the boot. But it was a pleasant conference, a two-day con uh, conference uh, that the book originated from at BYU. I think it was 2011 or 12. And at the conference, everybody was there. It was a true academic seminar in that we didn't have breakout sessions. Everybody listened to everybody else's papers. So when we wrote the book, we would have more of a conversation among academics than individual pieces. And uh, we, we left from there and prepared our essays. And uh, John and Miranda edited them and we put them in this book. Uh, there are many people, including uh, Richard L. Bushman and others, who think this is a very important book theologically. And, and the people in it really are top drawer. So there's kind of a background of where the book came from, because many of us found Aspects of the great apostasy narrative, very troubling. And in some cases, contrary to other core principles of, of Mormon teaching, what we call the gospel. Um, for example, Christ said to love even your enemies. Often the way the great apostasy narrative is interpreted is say, I'm better than my enemies and my enemies are going to hell with their church and their leader and whatever. And I'm thinking... That's not very Christ-like. So we were troubled by it. We were troubled by what we considered very bad history, uh, bluntly. I mean, some of the historical parallels drawn in the name of the great apostasy are just simply awful. So anyway, that's where the project came. My contribution, I was asked to contribute as kind of an outsider or uh, kind of an outlier. What I mean by that is uh, my background would be more in Quranic studies, Right. Or as a Sufi, it would be more in the mystical side of Eastern religions, especially Islam. So I was asked to come in and provide kind of a totally out there perspective, but as a as a faithful Mormon. So that I was I was trying to say, well, what does the Quran bring to my understanding of the great apostasy and how might it fix some 
things I was troubled with. So very briefly, um, my project then uh, was quite different uh, in certain respects from the others there. And hopefully I've accomplished my purpose, which was to say, I think other faiths not only are not condemned, I think they have a lot to teach us about our own teachings, a lot to teach us about the great apostasy. And the way I put that is, the title says alternatives to the binary logic of apostasy, where we divide the world into the saved and the damned and the good and the bad and the light and the dark. But anybody who's actually lived in this world and paid attention to what's going on knows that those binaries really never hold up. Or even though we condemn it now, what if the person we're condemning accepts the gospel in the next life, so to speak? Are they now good? Whereas they were evil before? And so there's just a lot of really challenging concepts to it. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop right there and say that that's what I was hoping to do. And in doing so, I tried to create a new language to talk about great apostasy. So I used phrases, I invented phrases, phrases like the binary logic of apostasy. Another phrase that I felt that I had to invent was an inclusivist LDS theology of religions. Another phrase that I felt I needed to use was covenantal pluralism. And, and so part of my effort was not only to learn from another religion, but in the process, completely recast the language that we use in addressing great apostasy. So that was my project, and we'll see if it's worth doing. But there you are. One of the things that you mentioned is that the genesis for the book really came out of the shared experience of many of these scholars dealing with you know, kind of an elementary or uneducated view about the medieval ages and the and the framing of the great apostasy. Um, but really, there there's a bigger context to that too, because the the way the church is moving and the direction it's going is is very global in in reach and scope. And so, how does the how does the great apostasy fit or not fit into that that new age of of Latter Day Saint expansion in the world? Can we? Just kind of start maybe by um, where the origin of the Great Apostasy came from. Uh, the, 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 the core text is um, that their creeds are an abomination. All of them are wrong type of concept. That God exploded into any church that's not our church is wrong, which was not what was said in that first vision narrative. Uh, not only was that not said in the first vision narrative, but God was answering Joseph Smith's question, which was, which of these sects should I join? Joseph Smith was only asking about a few options available to him. So what we call the Great Apostasy Narrative was not only narrow historically, or narrow in regional versus global terms, but it was personal to Joseph Smith. And as a, as a result, I think we, we've exploded this narrative well beyond Scope. Second of all, I would say that the, that the church was born in the milieu, in the framework of uh, competing Christian theologies. Uh, he was saying, well, the Baptists say this, the Methodists say that, the Presbyterians say that. And a lot of the early history of the church is really combating other Christian dogmas, especially those three. When I went on my mission in 1977, we were engaging Roman Catholicism, but we're using a lot of the same arguments that were produced in the time of Joseph Smith his arguments, the arguments of others in his day. Those don't work on a global scale, right? This, this whole 
this whole framework really doesn't work on a global scale. It doesn't help you talk to Buddhists. They aren't arguing the niceties of Christian theology or dogma. They're not. And so if you're going to work in that world, you got to make a switch. And uh, I think that the church is in the middle of that, frankly. I don't, I don't know that we're, we're there yet, but they're making sincere attempts. So that's how I put it. Say that in the global, it, to, for me, for example, the whole idea of blacks and the priesthood ceases to work when you want to have a church in Brazil. It's just that simple. Because if you want local leadership, you got to jettison the blacks and the priesthood thing. But as the new headings to the, um, to the uh, second declaration that we find the 2013 headings, that uh, President Kimball had determined that the only thing that would get us out of that was a revelation from the Lord, right? He said, we, we needed a revelation because we're going to sit and argue our positions forever. But, but you, need, you need another authority. And my point would be, we're still kind of arguing great apostasy and global perspective. Maybe we need a revelation to knock us out of our, our loop. But anyway, that's my kind of response is that this is unfolding, but I don't think we're really very close yet. Unfolding with the 1978 First Presidency Statement, unfolding with, I mean, there's just, a whole, I preached my gospel mentioning Buddha and Muhammad. These are sort of gestures toward that, the new pamphlet on Islam. Any rate, so I would just say that I think we're in the process of figuring out where our religion fits into the religions uh, that surround us. And that's where I got the phrase theology of religions. That our theology should have a way of incorporating other religions, and we haven't done that yet. So anyway, enough on that. David, what do you think brought about that revelation that solved the blacks and the priesthood problem that we'd created for ourselves? Uh, certainly, you know, Brazil was one is one answer. But the reason I ask the question is because I'm wondering what is what is going to bring about the next revelation, the revelation that that helps us move forward again. Um, it's a great question. So I'll give you kind of my Sufi perspective on this. In fact, it's something I've been working on trying to refine. So these are just kind of my thoughts at this point. But faith crisis. I, I'm use, I hear this term used a lot, right? Mormon Stories Org talks about faith crisis. We talk about faith crisis, and I would almost recast them as expectation crises, that we formulate a view of ourselves or the world that we expect it to be a certain way, but then we experience the world or we experience our life, and we realize that the experience is not, is not working with the expectation. And I think that what's happening is the expectations that were being taken into the blacks and the priesthood argument, uh, that revelation, our experience was not matching up, whether it be Brazil or other places. There are many ways to take that. But our experience was not matching up. For me, the faith crisis was, I really believe that all humans are created equal. I really took that whole Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, sort of Enlightenment, classical liberalism to heart. I believed it truly. It's in the scriptures. And so if I believe that truly, then I don't know what to do with blacks in the priesthood. Because that it seemed to be to be a denial, right? We're all children of God except them. We're all children of God except Palestinians. We're all children of God except women. We're all children of God except blacks. We're all children of God. And that to me was a pharisaical position. Like we're, we're, we're the real children of God, not those, those stupid Samaritans who Jesus made the heroes of his parables. He never made a Pharisee a, a hero, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is I think that 
our experience is pointing us in a direction to where we have to revisit things like the Great Apostasy Narrative, which is a historically, supposedly, historical narrative. Our expectation, our interpretation of things has to be met by people of other faith we meet who are better than us. People of other faith we meet who are more committed than us. People of other faith who, that our experience is going to have to knock aside these sort of ingrained prejudices that are inherent in a great apostasy narrative. So that's what I would say is that we, we need to head to a faith crisis. And we did in Brazil. And we did with David Peck saying, I don't like going to church and being taught blacks can't have the priesthood because of some hokey, premortal, less valiant, or curse of Cain thing. Okay, so anyway, that would, that's kind of my response. I think we're headed toward that crisis. Yeah, I, I love what you point out, David, because you, you sort of separate the need for this supposed revelation to knock us out of our context as a church. But you, David Peck, and me, Riley Risto, and you, Christopher Hurtado, you don't need that. We don't need that. We can go ahead and soldier on and understand the gospel as it's meant to be understood from our own perspective without that revelation bogging us, or, or the lack of revelation bogging us down. Now, we hope that it comes someday, just like a lot of people hoped that the blacks would get the priesthood someday prior to 1978. And I think that's the same expectation that, that and hope that we have as we anticipate a day when we're no longer bogged down by this, you know, great apostasy type discussion. Yeah, I mean, we've actually, in a sense, we've already received that revelation. We can't receive it for the church, but we've received it for ourselves. And we've met those Muslims that David is talking about and those Buddhists that David is talking about. And that was part of it. Yeah, I think that I would just add to this. My heart goes out. It really does. To all of those who want to be engaged with the church but who need that revelation and are leaving. Maybe not that exact revelation, but their experience has brought them to that crisis point. Their experience might be their gay sibling, or their experience might be the way uh, a woman is treated by priesthood authority, or their experience may be, um, and, and so I, I do worry about that. There, there's um, a really great metaphor for what I'm talking about, Eric Auerbach, who you may know as a great uh, uh, early 20th century literary critic, wrote about what he called the moment of doom, which he said that our character flaws, our character attracts our fate, like a magnet attracts iron. And of course, the closer you get to that, the stronger the magnetic pole and the fewer options you have to resolve the issue. If you resolve it earlier, you resolve the character problem earlier or address it, then it opens up all kinds of possibilities. But I, I think with blacks in the priesthood, we were headed toward the moment of doom. In other words, it wasn't until you had no options that we finally opened ourselves up to revelation. I think God would have revealed it long ago. And I think there were many Latter-day Saints who had that revelation. So I, I, I think that the challenge is, can you, can you find that truth and preserve your, your association with the church before the revelation comes? And I think your podcast and many other things are attempts by Latter-day Saints to say, I want to discover this before I experience the full-out faith crisis and ask to resign from the church or something. 
That's how I would phrase yeah, it. That was a point that I was going to make, and I love that, that uh, for all those who are struggling or feel like they're on the outside of this uh, this bubble that doesn't fit what they're experiencing or witnessing in the world, I, I feel like we can be a support group, and there's many like us who are opening up space within the tradition to have these experiences and to believe certain things about the gospel and and how God interacts with his children without necessarily feeling like we have to detach ourselves. That That's not to malign any who would detach themselves, but but more to say, I think there's space within. Absolutely. And I think that is exactly what Jesus would want us to do. This whole concept of the lost sheep presents an economy, a spiritual economy, that is so different from how we behave, which is you don't count your loss, you count your gain. You don't get defensive. You become, you move on to the offense. You go out and you discover. And I think we have yet to learn that because I think that we we have to realize that in spiritual economy, the cost is always worth it. And we haven't figured that out yet. And we may need to put up with more gay Mormons. And we may need to put up with, you know, more. In other words, we come to the point where you wonder if heresy is even pro- is more of a of a detriment than a benefit where we don't pound articles of faith into people or we don't we don't worry about our press releases we just we work with souls we stop working with positions we stop working with dogmas we stop we start finding people so anyway i would say that and that's why i love sufism because sufism is exactly about that working with the soul, not judging, not condemning, loving, serving, honoring, respecting, listening, sharing. I think that the more we move into that spiritual vein and move away from the religious vein, then I think that the better the church can handle that problem. But it, it, that's going to be a tough move. Hey, you know, another interpretation of all of their creeds are, are an abomination is, you know, the one that Riley and I have given here on the podcast is rather than all of their creeds are an abomination, all of their creeds are an abomination. Mm. It's not about creeds. It's not about articles. Look how quickly we came up with our own creeds, the articles of faith, right? And and there were catechisms. Right? Many don't realize that there were LDS catechisms, that, that there were these question and answer Catholic type catechisms where children were taught to memorize these creeds uh, that 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 we have, and I th- you know if it's children that's a different question right I mean because you you, you start with uh, something that orients them toward faith and gives them something to think about, but how do you handle that transition I guess the way I would put it is um, there's a number of people. Uh, who are adults who have families who are troubled and have all these issues of how to raise a family in the church who still their guiding principle is for the strength of youth. And I'm going, isn't that for the strength of youth? Uh, It's become a creed. And I'm going, well, sometimes you have to deal with your child in a way that doesn't fit for the strength of youth. And, And maybe, and I wonder if we haven't become so inculcated in that concept of our own creeds that we can't seek out the lost sheep very effectively because they just don't fit. So David, let's dive into some of the meat of your of your article because I think there's some really neat concepts that we can discuss in the, in the final maybe half hour of this uh, this podcast episode. 
So what you tried to do is is draw things back away from this kind of critical moment that within LDS theology we've identified as being the dividing line between what was the Church of Christ and what it became later and then what was restored even later than that. That dividing line is, is sort of like it's a it's a fiction. It, it honestly just doesn't even exist, right? So you tried to draw it back even further and say, how could we look at this from not only just within Christianity, this this history within Christianity and being true to that, but how about the history of religions? And let, let's talk about where we share some commonality and how we might get beyond the idea of, of this apostasy of the rest of the world and we're in this special bubble that has it all. How do we get beyond that? What's that first step look like? Okay, for me... Uh... I go directly to the defining event of our existence uh, in, in terms of homo religius or whatever we want to call humankind as spiritual creatures, our association with the divine, etc. And that is what in Mormonism we call premortality, which is the basis for everything that proceeds. And uh, so in the article, I go back into a Quranic account of, of if you will, pre-mortal covenant, which I renamed the Ur covenant, meaning the covenant from which all other covenants flow, the indispensable covenant. And uh, there's a big difference, kind of, there's a lot of similarity in the Quran with this, but a difference. And maybe if I can just take one little moment and talk about this, it's found in Surat um, Al-Araf, which is Surah 7 of the Quran, verse 172 in most versings. And it it says that it, 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 it implies or involves a pre-mortal congregation. I don't know if you want to call it a counselor, what, of all the souls, every soul. And the divine asks the question, Am I not your Lord? In other words, will you submit to my lordship? Will you accept my purposes? Will you accept, in Elias terms, my plan? Okay, and the verse says, In other words, it says, with one voice, All the souls said, we so witness, we so testify. But importantly, in that verse, it says that they swore this oath on their nafsihim, meaning upon their souls. The notion is that my soul is the collateral I offer for the promise I've made. So if I lose my soul, so to speak, in a soteriological sense, I have no one to blame but me. It's my covenant, and I pledged my soul. But on the other side, the divine says, if you, if you abide your covenant and you, you magnify your covenant, you, you, you live that covenant, then I am going to take your soul to places and, and in ways and, and into states of being that you cannot imagine. And so this covenant then is the one that all subsequent covenants flow from. And I call it accepting the Father's plan, accepting, excuse me, accepting the Father's plan. The notion that everything I'm doing here is based on the covenant. The other important part of that covenant as an origin point is everybody I ever meet made that covenant. I will never encounter another human who did not make that covenant. And from the Sufi perspective, I accept their covenant as a serious one. I don't buy into these theories that 
well, they were less valiant in pre-mortality, or I don't know who was valiant or who was not valiant. All I know is if they're here, they made the promise. And it arranges my relationship with humanity, which is as part of that Ur covenant, I promised to help other people live their Ur covenant. I promised, I pledged to help them. That was part of God's purpose, that I should be encouraging not damning or condemning. I should be supportive. And and that, that that I am fulfilling God's original purpose by extending that love and, and that concept. And I'll just kind of put it this way. We believe that people can repent even after this life and receive all the blessings that belong to any of us, but we don't act like they do. We judge them. They're lost. They're gone. They're apostate. They're blah, blah, blah. But in reality... We don't know where they're going to end up. We have no idea. So I should respect every soul I meet, no matter their religion, no matter their faith, no matter whatever the color of skin is, no matter what we might call gender, that I should see them as a soul who made a serious covenant. And when I do, I won't. I don't need a commandment that says don't commit adultery. Because if I did commit adultery, I'm trying to take somebody else's body and put it to my self-satisfaction. I don't need a covenant that says don't steal because I would be taking somebody else's things and trying to put them into my own satisfaction. I wouldn't be supporting them in their covenant. So at any rate, that's why I say it's a starting point because it arranges everything thereafter. You're, you remind me, David, of the, the great little book, The Greatest Thing in the World by Henry Drummond that makes the point that we only need one commandment, which is love God. All the other ones fall into place if we if we keep that commandment. Is there and another thing is you, you've brought up some something that makes me think in terms of veils because we've all made this covenant, but now we can talk about veils. But before we move on to that, I have a question: Is there a, any textual basis, any Quranic basis for the idea that part of our covenant is to support each other in keeping that covenant? Or is that just an inference? No, no, no. There I are... think it's a good inference if it is an inference. Right, and I'd, I'd really probably want a little more time to think about it. But I, but I would say this. Uh, there is the oft-quoted uh, verse that says, uh, Lo, humankind, we created you from a single pair of a male and a female and divided you into tribes and nations. And I would say religion is included in that that you may come to know one another, right? We are supposed to come to know people, not despise one another is a common interpretation included in some translations. It doesn't say exactly that, but, but the purpose of everything we see in the world of us being different than other people is so we can learn from other people. In other words, different differences is a divine inheritance, right? That God wants us to be divergent. God wants us to find uh, our own way with it, with guidance and etc. So the fact that we see other religions in a very real way is is a continuation of God's purpose because He's going to say, "Are you going to love these people anyway, or are you going to hate these people?" Yeah, the verse you quoted is one of my favorites. It, it strikes me as really odd for it to be translated as "despise one another." Having read the Arabic, it, I, I'd never heard it. It really doesn't say that, but in like the Abdullah Yusuf Ali translation, the meaning of the Holy Quran, that book, 
uh, his translation, which I really respect a lot, he does put that in parentheses. And so you'll often see it passed along. But you're right, the Arabic doesn't say exactly that, but it implies it strongly by saying, if you do learn from one another, then you're not going to despise, right? I wonder if that's really in the original translation of uh, Yusuf Ali. I know that the Saudis have have altered it and that the, the, his translation is a good translation, but most of the editions that you find are not actually his translation unaltered, right? Yeah, no, you're right. If you want, just in a side note, uh, I did a podcast uh, probably three or four years ago with the Neil A. Maxwell Institute in which um, I spoke with uh, Bruce... Lawrence, Dr. Bruce Lawrence from um, Duke University. And what he did is write a biography of the Quran in English. It's published by Princeton University. Excellent book. Yeah, Princeton University Press. And the actual uh, title is The Quran in English by Bruce Lawrence. It raises the translation issue you've raised. In our podcast, we addressed Saudi intentional misappropriations of the text. So for the interested listener, that's there. Yeah, I'm very much aware of that book. I have read it. It is an excellent book, and and, and Dr. Lawrence is an excellent scholar. It, it's interesting to note, too, that one of the most popular translations today, it, and it's the most popular translation of uh, for ISIS, is from uh, two converts, two Saudi converts to Islam. Not really a good translation. Yeah. I think those translations are horrible, but anyway. For example, just really quickly, in the opening surah of the standard Quran, you have what's called the Fatiha. And it basically says, uh, you know, that they ask God to count them among the faithful, right? Not like those who have fallen astray, um, like the Christians or those who are disobedient, like the Jews. The Quran does not say Christians or Jews there at all. That's a complete, in, just, it's just a complete Saudi version of the great apostasy at its worst, which is, you know, you guys had a covenant and you lost it. It really is a parallel kind of to the great apostasy narrative. And so they've thrown that in there and politicized it, yet it is one of the most widely read English Qurans because it's free. They give them away. And they wrote it with the intention of influencing Muslim youth who do not speak Arabic. Yeah, those are complete interpolations, not in the... and and. And intentional misrepresentations to guide people toward Wahhabism. At any rate, so David, can I take us back to this this concept that you opened us up to, which is the Ur Covenant? The Ur Covenant, meaning kind of the global or universal covenant that we all made. I had this moment of insight while you were talking that brought me to Mosiah chapter five, and of course, Mosiah chapter five is is the concluding of the speech of King Benjamin to his people. And it almost becomes this model where he, he's taught him these things. And then the, all the people with one voice, the, you know, and it's almost kind of funny because there's this long discourse, not, not even a discourse, but there's this, there's this long declaration that they all cried with one voice. And then it goes on for seven or eight verses, the exact thing that all of them said with one voice at the same time. And to me, this is less about like all of them responding to King Benjamin's, you know, sermon on, on at the temple or a sermon from his perch or whatever it is. And, and it's more about like modeling what happened in that Ur covenant. Essentially, King Benjamin is a king, just like God is a king. And he supplants himself with Christ in this, uh, in this declaration as well. But essentially, all these people are entering into a covenant 
with our God to do his will and to be obedient to his commandments in all things that he shall command us. So if you read this whole chapter as essentially a model of the Ur Covenant, we get an idea of of what it is that is the most important thing that God has for us as as a common human people. If the people of of King Benjamin, these people of Mosiah, represent all people, and King Benjamin represents God, we see in this a replaying of the Ur Covenant. This is something that was dealt with on our sister podcast, the the Latter-day Peace Studies Present Come Follow Me podcast, as a sovereign suzerain treaty. Yeah, yeah, that's a very fr- uh, familiar way to to read that is is that you're making a, a king a covenant with a king, and those were very frequent in many biblical or similar civilizations. I just want to say how much I agree with what you're saying about Mosiah five, and that thought had occurred to me while I was writing this article, and I think in earlier forms of it, um, it was present. It's su- it was such a hard article to write because I'm I'm. I'm really talking about an alternative to our binary logic of apostasy of jettisoning, jettisoning a major component of Mormon culture. And how do you go about doing that? I mean, I really felt out there. But so I, I probably rewrote this thing, oh, a couple of dozen times, cutting stuff, throwing away. But Mosiah 5 was always in my heart and my mind. Let me talk just very briefly about reenactments of premortality. You know, we've probably all heard of the whirling dervishes, which is a reference to the order of Sufis that followed the poet Jalaluddin Rumi. Uh, Rumi's name is Maulana or Mevlana in Turkish and uh, refers to him being a Sufi master. But he wanted to find a way to unite his community in, in Konya, Turkey, the modern city of ancient Roman Iconium. And in Konya, Turkey, there were Jews and there were Christians and there were um, Muslims. And he actually used the concept of whirling to unite them, although they may not have known it theologically. He always invited Christians and Jews to participate, and he was criticized by it, by more, you know, mainstream uh, Muslims. Why do you include these people? And he said, no, we all have souls, and our souls all began in the same place, talking about origins, as you were mentioning. So the whirling was an activity that he brought in. The music and the whirling was an activity he brought in to remember premortal covenant, to remember the Ur covenant. Now, people will often say, what do you mean by that? Well, a Sufi, Sufi oral tradition, we call it, the tradition handed down by, from master to disciple, not necessarily written down anywhere, but the core, more important than the writings, actually, the core tradition that comes down uh, taught speaks of that. Now, when they whirl, the the dervishes uh, of the Mevlevi order will hold usually the right hand up and open and the left hand down as a spout. And as they turn, what they're doing is they are reliving the moment at which we accepted that covenant, just like Mosiah's people with one voice, where we fell, we swooned and fell in the presence of the divine and in the presence of each other. We were overcome. And then we began to dance, to spin, to twirl, the hand up to receive the grace of God, the hand down as the spout to dispense it into the world and to fulfill our covenant by becoming a living conduit between the power of the covenant 
and the blessing of humanity through it. And it's all tied to premortality. In Sufism, there is no subject more important for discussion than our point of origin before we were born. You know, I've seen the the whirling dervishes, David, and on a trip to Cairo, and I had been walking around old Cairo for hours in the heat, and really just wanted to sit down and drink a cold Coca Cola. And so I only saw it from afar. I didn't go into the mosque. I wish I had waited a little longer to have that Coke. But but if you haven't seen this, you can check it out on YouTube. You know, you can find whirling dervishes on YouTube. Can I can I even just say there's another thing about it? All, uh, whirling dervishes use the reed flute called the ney n e y. And that ney has seven holes in that. And a lot of their poetry and things will say that we feel detached from God because although that, that pre-mortal event, which is so powerful and defining, took place, Rumi calls it, we were like reeds cut from the reed bed. And God cuts us off. That's birth. God cuts us off and then has carved seven holes into us and made the made the nay in the course of seven holes, or if you will, the seven holes of the body, the ears, the nose, the mouth, and other parts of the body. So in the whirling dervish thing, we have become, the music is our mortal existence being reconnected back to the pre-mortal defining event, you see. The music of the nay is, is the music of our body in this realm, but what song is it playing? It's playing the song that gets our soul reconnected with the pre-mortal event. So there's another example of the power, what Terrell Givens uh, in a quote in The God Who Weeps said, is the power of original choice, the choice from which all other choices follow. And that's what that event was. And that's the choice that King Benjamin is taking his people back to. So you see him reconnecting us with our first estate again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because otherwise, upon what basis could he as a king make a covenant? How could he connect us back to God? How could he connect us back to God unless there's a connection? Right. The king is supposed to be a representative of God. Well, and he refers to that in in verse 9 and 10. This is interesting to me. And he says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever doeth this shall be found, found at the right hand of God. How can he make that kind of a promise unless he's a representative of God, right? So he's representing God as if in that original play of the origin story. He's a symbol, essentially. It's that divine investiture being played out here. For he shall know the name by which he is called, for he shall be called by the name of Christ. Now he takes that same divine investiture and makes now Christ a substitute for God because God or Christ is God manifested. And he says, and now it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not take upon him the name of Christ must be called some other name. Therefore, he findeth himself on the left hand of God again. We're talking right and left. This is very clear. Like people who keep their first estate, they are added unto. They get a second estate. Those who don't, they're on the left hand of God. They, they never progress past that point. So the ultimate Ur covenant that you're referring to is this very basic acceptance or submission to the will of God. And absolutely, and a commitment to each other. It's both events that I submit to God, but it's part of that then is that I, it's very strongly taught in Sufism, that I have committed to you. I, I cannot, I should not ever cut you off. No apostasy doctrine, no whatever it is. Anything that cuts off other human beings to me is not love. It's a denial of the love that Christ taught. That's why I say this, this whole great apostasy narrative has a very, the way it's used, 
the way it's employed, the binary logic of apostasy is so anti-Christian. It just seems to violate the core principles that Christ taught in the New Testament. Yeah, as you kind of just chatted, I'll reveal the chat. The first and second commandments are the same. Isn't that what he said? When you do the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And he says the second is like unto it, meaning it's the same. Yeah. Absolutely. And then he says, you want to treat me well, treat them well. Well, what does good treatment be? Maybe I ought to honor their faith commitment. That doesn't mean I don't share mine with them. It doesn't mean that there isn't some other way of interacting with each other. But it has to begin with respect. And we don't get that out of the abuse of the great apostasy narrative. We get disrespect. So there's a, there's a sense in which we can look at this, this narrative and we can start to deconstruct it by, first of all, saying there, there are things that we do very well in the church. And this is how the narrative has survived over this long period of time as we say, okay, if you look at all religious practice as a hierarchy in the Latter-day Saint theology, tradition, and practice, we have the top of the top because we have temples and we have binding together families for eternity and we have these ordinances that are authorized by priesthood and whatnot. The question we don't often ask is, what lack I yet? What lack we yet? So as a church, if we're, start, if we're going to start deconstructing somewhat this idea about the great apostasy and separating ourselves from our brethren, and instead trying to seek out a, a mutual understanding about God's expectations and understandings for us, the way we go towards that is to ask that pivotal question, what lack I yet, and do it communally as a church. So if we were to ask that question now, David, what, what are some thoughts you might have on what, what are we lacking? Well, uh, in terms of, you know, I love the story of what the person who would call the rich young man. The first thing I would say is the story ends in the New Testament with the rich young man going away sorrowful because he had great riches. I'd like to think that the rich young man maybe the next day said, what am I doing? And went and sold all he had and found Jesus again. I would love to have the one that doesn't talk about what people lack. It's the rich young man who said, what lack I yet? And if you'll notice how the, how the story plays out, of course, is he comes to Jesus, what, how would I get eternal life, essentially? And, and Jesus said, well, you know, honor your father and your mother. And all. he goes basically to the Ten Commandments. And the rich young man in one of the accounts at least says, um, all this I've kept from my youth upward. Then he asks the magic question, what lack I yet? Not what do the Protestants lack yet? Not do what the Muslims lack yet? Not do, right? None of that binary logic. He wants a revelation and he gets one and it's personal. I don't have enough to give away to care about, but apparently that young man did. Uh, My challenges are other kinds of challenge. Again, remember, our our moment of doom applies to our character, that God fits the challenge to our character so that the growth is individualized. So when when you look at it, the first thing you have to do is start asking the question, not what do they lack, what do I lack? And Joseph Smith said this brilliantly. In the, uh, the, the teaching he gave that starts with the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly regard, right? They are his sons and daughters. And so that kind of thing is you don't look at what others lack because God is not doing that. Joseph Smith later on in that quote says, God will judge them by what they have, not by what they have not. And knowing that God is not judging on what people lack, 
we should begin to realize that all the ways we use great apostasy narrative or other differences are so unjust. They are not godlike judgments. Instead, we should learn to judge people for what they have. Now, that's a skill that's pretty tough. You have to invest. You have to care. You have to love. You have to listen. And so I think that kind of where we're headed with this eventually, beyond the great apostasy, is a land where we become more in tune with our own covenant, our Ur covenant. We become more in tune with respecting the Ur covenant of others. We become more in tune with loving and accepting and respecting. And, and I don't know when that point will happen, but I hope it happens before we have a continual bleeding out of the church. What President Nelson, Russell M. Nelson said when he was made an apostle, where he said, we are losing the lifeblood of the church. And that was back in the 70s. I think, and he said, in my world, meaning as a physician, we call that a hemorrhage. Well, I think the hemorrhage is growing. And I think the more we rely upon differentiation, the more we rely upon judgmentality, the less we rely on love, the less we rely upon serving, then the worse that hemorrhage is going to get. So I just pray that our ability to move beyond the great apostasy narrative, the way we use it at least, is is to to become more like Christ. And I think that when we do, we'll be better off as Christians. So using this pragmatically, if we were to look at other religious traditions and look at ourselves, and not in any kind of comparative or dualistic sense, but just asking that question and looking for a revelation to answer that question of what lack I yet, if we were to apply that to the church and say, you know, as a church, what what lack we yet? And, and looking to learn what we can learn from these other faith traditions. You know, we heard a fantastic episode on, on Faith Matters that Michael Wilcox did. And, and Chris and I are big fans of that, that episode and what came out of that. But essentially, he referred to the, the religious texts of other religions as the Eastern Standard Works. I love that <laughs> phrase because he's essentially treating those, those texts with the respect that they that they deserve based on what they convey to him, the truths that those texts convey to him. So he's opened himself up to those truths. So if we were to ask that question, what lack we yet, and we look at those other traditions, what are some things that they do very well that we could learn from and incorporate into our own practice and uh, theology? Yeah, and there's one other thing to have, for you to keep in mind as you answer that question, uh, David, and that is that he points out that we're in the fullness of times and that that means that we have access to all of the, the sacred texts, all of the wisdom literature that God, God, what God has revealed to other peoples. We didn't have access to that in Joseph Smith's time in the same way that we do now, and certainly not earlier. So what do we do with that? Let me kind of refer back to the article as a way of connecting that in here uh, and answering that question. So, I, for example, in pages 290 and 291, I move into... Second Nephi 29 narrative, right? Which is what lack I yet? Well, we, we're just beginning to learn this with your, with your, you know, this idea of an Eastern canon, uh, Eastern standard works. And uh, so in Second Nephi 28, God says, it says, God speaks the same words unto one nation like unto another, right? And witness that I am God. Those who are upon the isles of the sea, those that are upon, he goes through the entire planet and says, and guess what? I'm going to bring all them back together because they're my words. 
And I think we we often we often forget certain core Christian teachings in this regard. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, which one of you having a son, if he asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or ask for fish, will give him a serpent? If he being evil, give good gifts, how much so your father in heaven? And I'm going, so you're not a Mormon, so you get a stone? You're not a Mormon, so you get a snake? Uh, that is not a God I can deal with. I think that if somebody asks for something, God's going to help him with it. That's why we have the first parenthesis statement or preach my gospel where it says he, Buddha learned truths from God. Muhammad got truth from God. Be why? Because they asked and he gave him bread. They asked and he gave him fish. Now, why don't we bring those things to our banquet? Why is, why is our banquet the only way? And in connection with that, I remember there was a talk about, I don't remember who gave it, but early on in my youth at General Conference about how uh, the, the gospel is like a piano and we have all 88 keys and other religions only have a couple of notes. And I'm going, yeah, we have 88 keys and we still play chopsticks. They have 12 keys and write concerti, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, well, Bach did pretty good with whatever he had, you know. Uh, why are we still playing chopsticks? And I think that that's what we're doing. We have this richness, but instead we use it to differentiate ourselves from one another. Finally, in one other regard, I would go to, what is my favorite scripture? I almost can't quote the scripture without weeping. It's so, so beautiful, but we forget it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoso believeth in him should have everlasting life. And then the next part, very important for our great apostasy narrative. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. We need to be the saving, helping, kind, serving, loving givers, as those scriptures say. And that, that to me, sums the whole thing up. So all of what we need to do to make this transformation is in our theology. We just choose to emphasize other things. That's all. Coming back to the verse that said that God created us uh, that we might get to know one another, you know, from the Quran. I, I, I think, you know, we can, we can go out and we can meet the others, right? And get to know them. And we can take in and share at the same time that we share. We've got the sharing part down, right? But we can also be be open to uh, others sharing with us, right? And we can be looking to share what they have to share, and and we can all yeah, they can teach us. They can teach us, and we can all benefit. Let me let me see if I can wrap that up a little better. I'm not sure I really answered Riley's question, but so on this page two ninety two ninety one thing, for example, I talk about the idea of veils, which in Arabic is mahjub, and uh, one a great Sufi principle is kashf or removing the veils. But the veil is our veil. It's not God's veil. This is one of the things that I learned from the Quran and Sufism. We put the veils on. God does not veil us. So, for example, in the Quran, it says, you know, that Adam forgot. Adam forgot. God is not putting obstacles in our way. God wants us to get out of those obstacles. But many times our narratives have been interpreted by us to damn us in the sense of stopping us from recognizing what is elsewhere. And so as I, as I worked through the Quran, that was one of the things that occurred to me is, is the notion that God doesn't veil our mind. 
Uh, isn't that how we often talk about in the church? God placed a veil over our minds. And I'm going, that doesn't sound like God. Why would he, you know, to test us? And I'm going, well, we're going to be tested whether we have a veil or not. I think if you're mortal, you're going to be, you're going to struggle because we have desires and appetites and things that want to drag us in another direction. I don't think we need handicaps. So the notion here is that God loves us and therefore is always biased. The Quran, you know, says, God says, I am closer to you than your jugular vein. God is always there. God is like light always reaching out. God is this positive thing. And that's what I learned from, from my reading of the Quran that I talk about in pages 290-291, that, uh, that I was mistaken about veils. God does not veil me. I veil me. I choose. Let's take another theological concept real quick, David, and introduce that as well, one that comes from your article. And it's this, this idea of the light of Christ and the fitra in, in Islam. What can you tell us about that? So the, our Ur covenant is pointless if we don't have some sort of divine gift to help us to understand what choices to make and how to live based on that covenant. Because we do forget. We forget when we come, right? That, that's Quran 21.15, right? It says, we, meaning God, had already taken, had already beforehand taken a covenant from Adam, but he forgot. And so the notion is we have to take, first of all, take responsibility for our forgetting. There's another Quranic episode about that where Iblis, Lucifer, has been kicked out of heaven and on the way down he shakes his fist, metaphorically, so to speak, back at God and says, you did this to me. And Adam and Eve say, we did this to ourselves. So part of the beginning of this fitra is an acknowledgement that we know right from wrong, but there's something different about fitra. As I, as I studied the concept, it basically what fitra is trying to do is awaken us. It's always our nature. Our nature when we come to earth is not neutral and it is not evil. You know, so the whole idea of original sin as being depraved no, we're not depraved. We are good. Because we kept our first estate, right? That's right. And we made the covenant, which is good. We are good. We have committed. We have kept our first estate. Yes. And so, but, and not only are we not neutral, we are not tabula rasa, upon which can be written anything. But it says, in fact, if you go back to that pre-mortal episode where we said, Kalu bala shahidna, it, we, yea, we so testify, God says this lest you should say on the day of judgment <laughs> that our fathers taught us the wrong thing or that we forgot. He's saying, you're not going to be able to use that excuse because I'm going to give you something to make sure you don't forget. It's called your fitra, your nature. And so essentially what it means is we come predisposed to return to God. We're not neutral. There isn't really a natural man in that sense that is evil toward God. Instead, what fitra teaches us is that we, we come predisposed to worship and obey God and to love one another. And what this means is we have to, and because this is used outside of the, of the endowment text, I get to use it. It's used all over the scriptures. The two things that Fitra helps us do is awake and arise. And so we first have to wake up, and that's remembering rather than forgetting. Our fitra is constantly prodding us to remember premortality, prodding us to remember our promises. 
urging us to move forward, urging us to wake up. And then when we do, it acts like the light of Christ in that it helps us to seek the good. So I think that it's it's a concept broader than the light of Christ, but includes the light of Christ. But it includes it in the sense of awake and arise. I just wanted to give listeners another example of sort of a, an overlap in theology that maybe they hadn't opened up space for or given thought to. And, you know, these are all over what, again, Michael Wilcox called the Eastern Standard Works, you know, the, the Confucian texts, the, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Quran itself. And there's so many ways that we can connect with our brothers and sisters around the world that it, we could spend so much more time on that connection versus what distinguishes us from each other or separates us from each other. And I think uh, if we spent more time on that and put more energy into that, we would have a closer relationship with our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Why, why emphasize difference? God doesn't do that. He looks at what we have, not what we have not. Because everybody has not. I have not. I could be the perfect Latter-day Saint and I'd still have not. I mean, what's the point in believing a God that judges people by how they screw up? I mean, we're all dead. When, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I remember everybody said, you have to measure up to Jesus, right? You have to fulfill the measure of the stature of Christ, the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ, as Paul put it. You have to do that or you're out. And I'm going, I'm being judged by Jesus? What a depressing thought. If I'm being judged by that, then you're looking at what I lack because I lack so very, very much. But, but God wants us, and Fitra tells us this, it teaches us this, and many of us within the church and elsewhere are saying, I don't want to hear stories about how everybody screws up. In, in other words, I don't want to hear your, your cheap, you know, great apostasy judgments anymore. I don't want to hear about a thousand years of Stygian darkness descended upon humanity. I, that doesn't do anything for me. I, I need to live differently. Something in me is trying to push me in a different direction. And maybe that will produce the crisis that will cause us to move beyond the binary logic of the great apostasy. And I think that, that that's coming. There's one more question I'd like to ask, and that is uh, back to this idea of veils. I mentioned earlier veils. We know that we've all made this covenant we know that we have fitra then to help us to remember it. We have guidance. I don't. I can't remember if we've talked about guidance, um, and that of course the fitra helps us to be predisposed, predisposed to receive guidance. What about veils? Because I think sometimes part of the great apostasy narrative is, yes, uh, everyone that I've met has made the covenant, but they've forgotten. And of course, I had veils too, right? But my veils have been removed because I have now come into the the uh, only living, uh, only true and living church on the face of the earth. And so all the veils have been lifted from me. Well, I hate to say this, I guess, but that sounds like a Pharisee talking. They've already got the holiness figured out. I like how Houston Smith talked about Phariseeism. He called it the Pharisaical Holiness Program. I thought, holiness and program, that doesn't even make any sense. Like, holiness is programmatic, you know. The Pharisees, the Pharisees' holiness program, and I don't mean to condemn Jews anciently when I say Pharisees. It's the tendency to become legalistic and self-righteous and finding excuses for our own behavior, including the one, well, I don't have any veils or whatever. And, and how do you make repentance? How do you make any spiritual progress if you think you're already there? I mean, and, and it's so damning because... 
I mean, you've already figured out you're Jesus or something, I guess. And the beauty of what the Sufis say about what is coming out of the Quran is they go, no, it's a continual process of unveiling. And what are you unveiling? You are unveiling your soul to your consciousness. What you're unveiling really isn't God so much as you are, you are, you are revealing your fitra. You are revealing your divine nature. You are revealing your soul to yourself so you can act from your soul. And God really basically is just waiting for us to grow up. Right? He's, he's basically saying, anytime you're ready, I'm right here. And so I, I guess my response to that is, anytime we've decided that we're in, then I think we're in serious trouble. And so for, for Sufis, they'll basically say the number of veils is infinite. We, we put veils between us and God all the time. And one of them is, I'm holy. <laughs> That's a big veil because you can't get anywhere with that attitude. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, maybe some, some might say, well, I don't have all the veils lifted, but I have fewer veils to deal with. Right. And again, just I think sometimes, you know, we think, OK, we know the true nature of God. So we've got God all figured out now. Right. Yeah. right? Okay. Which is how do you do that? Right. And so, and by the way, even if you thought, okay, if you thought, if you think that's possible, right? We've talked about this uh, on the show before. If you think because you know um, what God looks like, or how many, I don't know, what, what, how many people God is, or how many parts God has, if if I can tell you all these things, none of this really tells you God, right? Talking about God is not God, right? So an experience of God transcends all of that. And none of that gives me access to God, uh, even if you have the right answer. And how would I even know that? Right. No, if you look at the first vision accounts, I especially like the 1832 account, which I think is the only one in Joseph Smith's own hand. But that is basically, I wanted to know about my soul. Joseph Smith goes there knowing that he, he is not where he ought to be. And, and it comes with that humility of realizing that. Then when he wants to talk about God, he uses different language according to the accounts that we have, right? It's a fire that doesn't consume the trees, or it's a light brighter than noonday. He's struggling to find some way to describe his experience, but frankly, it's all almost nonsensical. What do you mean a light bright? So it's a light brighter than the brightest light I've ever seen. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, you know, it's a fire unlike any fire I've ever seen. Thank you very much. And so the discovery of God is experiential, not discursive. We don't have God figured out. Right. And we latch on to one concept or another and ignore the rest. We say God has a body. We don't say God is a burning bush. Right. Right. And I remember sitting in a lesson as a, a, a young man. It was a Aaronic priesthood lesson. And, and the lesson, as it came out of the manual of that day, um, basically said, we worship God in truth because we know God has a body. And and I said, really? Uh, but I've been told that body is immortal and glorified. What the heck is that? You mean, so I say God has a body, I'm going, but then it tells me his body is totally unlike any body. It's Joseph Smith again. His, his glory is like a fire you've never seen before. You can't comprehend. His glory is like a light that's brighter than a light you've seen before. You can't comprehend. In other words, we, we say these things as if they mean something, and they don't mean something. <laughs> they, they may be important, but more important is to come to God. Uh, John 5, 29 is occurring to me right now. Very briefly, um, search the scriptures. 
for in them you think you find eternal life, and they are there to testify of me. And I think the next verse says something like, but you will not come to me that I might heal you. In other words, it isn't the scriptures that's going to do it. It's the coming to Christ that's going to do it. Because as James says, the devils know all about God and tremble. Or the Pharisees, because uh, John 5, 29 was aimed essentially at those kinds of groupings of Jesus' day, like Pharisees. And he's saying, you, th- you guys think you know because you know the scriptures. Search them. Go ahead. I think he's really saying, oh, you want to find God? Go ahead and search the scriptures. Not there. You will think you have eternal life. And they do testify me. But you will not come to me. And so that, anyway, that's would be my response is that, and then if you come to, to him, you're like Joseph Smith. You have an experience with the divine, but you can't share it with anybody else adequately. You try. You stumble for words. <laughs> you try. Yeah, you, you but know, you try. You put it all in writing yeah, you and you to. write out all your mystical experiences and you try to give people the best path for arriving where you already arrived. And it's, it's nearly impossible. You know what the kind of, from an LDS theology perspective might be the most dangerous thing about what you just said, which again, I totally agree with is that means there are as many paths to God as there are people. Have we ever said that before? (laughs) It's like one of our top 10 quotes on the show, maybe top five. (laughs) My mind is also like, there's as many Mormonisms as there are Mormons. Well, there is that too. No, that's a really good point. We we come to the no true Scotsman fallacy, right? Because we think, no, there really is a, a right way to Mormon and a wrong way to Mormon. But I think if you talk to enough and you really talk to them and find out what they believe, uh, that we each have our own. I can't possibly know, just like I don't actually know God in a way that I can comprehend in the, in the true sense of the word, right? That I can really wrap my arms around and include all of God. Just like I don't know that myself, I can't possibly know how you understand God. You can't tell me. And I can't know it. There's no other way that I can know it. And so, but you can, I can love me. Yes, yes, I can. So I can. You can say, serve me. You can say you believe in God. I can say I believe in God, and we can subscribe to the creeds or the articles of faith or the descriptions that are in one or another versions of the first uh, vision, so-called. But I still don't know. I don't have any access to to uh, you know some kind of what it is that you think God is and and what God actually is but I can love you. You can love me. It's the concept of ineffability, right? In mysticism, which is, you know, I think that people have forgotten that Edna Moult from the movie, The Incredibles, is a Sufi master when she said, no, darling, it's words, 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 words. Go, 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 go. And I listen to her and I go, she's a Sufi master, (laughs) you know? And then she says, but you will not be here now. And I go, she just explained the spiritual mystical path in 20 words, and most of them were gobble, 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 gobble. So uh, I often share that one to people and I go, there it is right there. And so you're right. What that means is I can't use the great apostasy to judge other people. You, you understand our standards of judgment collapse. And so to use a great apostasy concept, again, I'm talking binary logic of great apostasy, bad judgment from our understanding of an apostasy. That, that it really is entirely damning of what we think we're trying to do, in my opinion. Amen. It just denies. You want a point of origin. It comes from pre, pre-eternity. You want to know the event that I think we're going to have to come up to is that we need to watch the hemorrhaging of the church, so to speak, the youth of the church. And we need to also, as we go globally, 
find which what is virtuous, lovely, of good report or praiseworthy in all these people we meet. We have that article of faith, but instead we find what's wrong, what's missing, what's absent, not what they have. So that would be my kind of concept for that. I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Uh, David, thank you so much for attending our, our episode again and helping us out to understand these concepts and to sort of break down and reframe this idea of apostasy and how we might instead focus on coming together with our brothers and sisters of different faiths throughout the world. We look forward to uh, having you on again. We'd love to pick your brain about various subjects, and, and we're very grateful that you could come today. Thank you. I love our, our conversations, and I love our sharing. When two or three come together in my name, there am I also. And I feel when I'm conversing with you, you are committed people. You've come here because you believe that what is happening uh, within your faith tradition is important and that you want to do your best in doing it. And I am enriched by that. And I thank you for your sharing. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week. 